0: I'm Autumn Lockett,
1: and this is Mitch Randall,
0: and you're listening to Good Faith Weekly.
1: Welcome to Good Faith Weekly, and on this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up, and guess what? Good Faith Media turns one today. Also later on the pod, uh... Autumn and I are going to talk about the upcoming holiday, Independence Day, and then we're going to sit down with the Executive Director of the Baptist Joint Committee, Amanda Tyler. And she does a great job talking about the the mythology of uh, America being a Christian nation and also talks about uh, the latest trends in religious liberty and church-state separation. So you want to stay tuned. Uh, It's going to be a good episode.
2: I'm Reverend Starlett Thomas, a womanist in ministry and the host of a new podcast, The Raceless Gospel, from Good Faith Media. We're going to talk about that taboo trinity, race, religion, and politics. Season one of The Raceless Gospel has five episodes, five Sundays, if you will. We're going to take you to church each episode. We're going to talk about the sticks and stones, the skin and bones of Christian discipleship through the structure of a church service. And each episode, we're joined by a special guest who will bring a word. The Raceless Gospel Podcast, five episodes, all available March 22nd. I'm your podcast pastor, Reverend Starlet Thomas. Join us as we march into and beyond race, religion, and politics. learn more at goodfaithmedia.org.
1: Autumn, happy birthday, Good Faith Media.
0: Happy birthday. It is so nice for the whole country to have fireworks in our honor this week.
1: I know. I mean, it's just, it, I mean, it's just a delight that everybody's just taking a, a time to pause. We're, and are kind acknowledge. of a big deal, right? <laughs> Well, I don't know about that, but uh, in our own minds, at least.
0: Yeah, it's taken up a lot of our time. We can put it that way. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> well, golly, it's hard to believe it's been an entire year. Um, you know, we th- we look back at uh, the staff and uh, has been looking back at this past year and just thinking about everything that took place to to take us uh, to the point where we launched in July of 2020. Uh, during a pandemic, you know, because that's a, of course, that's what you want to do during a pandemic is launch a new organization, right?
0: Sure, absolutely. <laughs> that and have a baby. That's exactly what you'd want to do. <laughs> Thankfully, we dodged one of those bullets. <laughs> <laughs> that's
1: right. Oh, so know, looking back on the last year, what what just come what leaps to mind to you? What are some of your favorite moments?
0: You know, I feel like we had. A lot of times when I had sort of the realization, oh, that's why we're doing this, Mm. you know, through the election, through last summer of, you know, Black Lives Matter rallies and things happening through our Palestinian situation that's been happening through listening to the stories of LGBTQ plus folks, through walking alongside pastors who are going through a really hard time right now. I just had so many of those moments that were like, oh, that's what we're doing. Yeah. What about you?
1: You know, there's so many. And, you know, as we, we were trying to recap everything we've done this first year, uh, just is really remarkable the amount of content that Good Faith Media has produced. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And all that has to do with what a great staff we have. Uh, I mean, Zach Dawes, who leads our digital news and opinion, uh, three news stories uh, each and every weekday, just does a great job in bringing the news and opinion uh, on the latest issues, just just mm-hmm. phenomenal. And our columnist, oh my gosh, from our staff to uh, our volunteers, just do a great job in their coverage of, of the latest trends where faith and culture intersect. And then, you know, our, our print publications with the Nurturing Faith Journal and our books, uh, Johnny Pierce and Bruce Gorley just do a fabulous job, and all the staff that uh, are involved in that just, just really remarkable. We went over the 120 mark in book publications this year, which is uh, phenomenal. And uh, and then, of course, our our journal keeps—Nurturing Faith Journal subscriptions keep increasing. Uh, A lot of that is because of the stories that are written, and the Bible study by Tony Cartledge is is just remarkable. And, you know, the two uh, divisions within Good Faith Media that uh, probably suffered the most because of the pandemic were our media production, because uh, when the pandemic hit last year— Uh, All of our video video production just came to a halt because we couldn't go anywhere.
0: Well, we were low-key trying to stay alive through a pandemic, (laughs) so we had a little bit of an excuse. That's
1: exactly right. Uh, But we were able to pivot, and we pivot so well uh, into the podcast world. And and, uh, we launched Good Faith Weekly over a year ago before the launch of Good Faith Media. But certainly was in conjunction with it. And then now we've got eight podcasts in our family, a podcast, which is remarkable.
0: It is. Yeah. It, it reminds me a little bit of our family. One day I looked up and there were four kids at our dining table and I was like, wait, it, that escalated <laughs> quickly. What happened? And I, as someone who, you know, sort of runs the platforms um, after club does all of his beautiful artistic work of putting these beautiful podcasts together, um, it's, it's a lot to manage. There's a lot... You know, of stories being told, we are truly living out. There's more to tell.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And then our experiences, I mean, we haven't been on experience or taken a group uh, anywhere w- within the last year because of travel restrictions. So it's really nice to, to look forward uh, and being able to, to take people to Yellowstone and Glacier National and all these great national parks, encouraging them to unplug from media, which sounds strange from a media company. But to unplug and to, to get in tune with you and take care of your emotional, spiritual and mental health, uh, we think is very important. So, you know, you talk about one of the, the I guess, the the moment that really capsules, I guess, defines why we do what we do. And I think that's when you and I attended the Black Lives Rally March uh, here in Norman, Oklahoma. And we were covering it, shooting video, getting interviews. And it was just, it was really inspiring uh, to see people uh, from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, uh, at the march, uh, talking about why they believed this mattered, uh, mm-hmm. it was not a hostile group by any means. They weren't angry. They were just, uh, you know, saying they, they want justice. Uh, they're tired of the status quo. They're tired of uh, the way things were going in this country and that uh, they were demanding change. And this was a productive, healthy way to do that and express mm-hmm. that, that desire. And so, you know, that moment was, was really, uh, poignant for me. Um, attending that Black Lives Matter march. Mm-hmm.
0: Could you have imagined sitting where we were on July 1 of last year? You know, the website goes live, all the social media goes live. Um, is it everything you thought it would be?
1: Oh, 100%. Uh, you know, in fact, it's even more than I thought it would be. Um, I, I knew this was a great idea. And in my article this week at goodfaithmedia.org, I give all the credit in the world to Babs Ball, who brought. Ethics Daily and Nurturing Faith together to talk about a potential collaboration that ended up turning into a merger. Her wisdom and foresight to think strategically was a brilliant move. And when Johnny and I sat down with our boards and talked about what this was going to become, uh, we imagined uh, what it might become, but it's become that and so much more. Uh, I'm so, so happy where we are as an organization. And probably the thing I'm proudest of the most, Autumn, is the fact that not only are we generating great content, but we're working with some wonderful partners Mm -hmm. uh, that are doing outstanding work. And what our motto here at Good Faith Media is that a rising tide lifts all boats. And when we look at the landscape of faith-based journalism and advocacy, there are organizations in our world that are changing culture by their hard work and passion. And, and it's, just, it's really inspiring to see, and we want to help them do that. And that's been really exciting to see, too, all of our partnerships.
0: And to see, I think how the staff talent sort of came together in a way that was able to meet a need, you know, you talked about our podcast and we've created a podcast network and it, you know, it just so happens that you have this like world-class media producer, um, (laughs) who can so artfully and skillfully put together the stories that people have to tell. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's been another really exciting piece of this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, as you said, the, the nation is uh, throwing a birthday party for us uh, this weekend. <laughs> uh, but for those who are unaware of uh, Good Faith Media's first anniversary, they may be celebrating Independence Day. And so yeah. uh, what are you and your family, what are you traditionally you've done on Independence Day?
0: So we typically um, go to Texas where my husband's parents live. They live on a uh, I you know, it's hot little, down there,
1: right? And you can only turn your AC down to like 95 degrees because, you <laughs> well, know, gonna, hey, they're free and they have their own grid. They
0: they have free and independent electricity that may or may not turn
1: on, right? <laughs> exactly. So
0: the kids don't know this, so be quiet if okay. you uh-huh. see them. But we've rented one of those giant inflatable water slide pool combos that is going to be, they're going to wake up tomorrow morning and come out and it's giant. And his parents live Is it, Is it East- like in
1: the form of Uncle Sam or... Please tell me it's it's, not the capital because I'm going to get twitchy thinking about it. It's big tech. When in Rome,
0: (laughs) when in Rome, Mitch. But they live on an easement of a cattle ranch. And so they have like 20 acres and fishing ponds, and all the kids practice their driving in real cars. And they're going to see their cousins who they haven't seen in a year. And so it's it's going to be good. That'll That'll
1: be a lot of fun.
0: What are you doing?
1: Well, my family has abandoned me uh, over Mm -hmm. the holiday. Uh, after a year and a half of living together once again. Togetherness. Uh, togetherness, that's right. My two adult sons are back where they belong. My youngest is back in college in the Northeast, and my oldest is on his way to California, uh, where he's going to get established and start after graduating college during the pandemic. So my wife uh, is taking him out there to get him settled in Los Angeles. So I'm here by myself. Uh, so I...
0: Well, you have Charlie, the giant Great Dane, <laughs>
1: to keep you company. I, I do. Charlie, a 150-pound uh, Great Dane. She and I will uh, celebrate the, uh, the birthday of America on July the 4th, but we're not going to shoot fireworks because that would scare her to death.
0: I was going to say, yeah, <laughs> she doesn't seem like the big firework fan.
1: No, but, uh, you know, um, every 4th t- of July just reminds me about how, uh, fortunate we are to live in the United States. Uh, but also, you know, there's some misconceptions about what this means and why we celebrate our freedom. I think we also need to be honest about uh, the beginning of our country and and how it started and and why we celebrate and appreciate every element and aspect of this country. We also need to realize that it hasn't been great for some people in this country. Uh, When the country was founded, for example, it meant it was uh, that there were rights established for white males. Women were not included Who in that. Who own
0: land. Who right? own land.
1: That's right. Exactly. <laughs> um, women were not included in the, the original rights uh, as well as people of color. And so it's been a struggle. But uh, as Jefferson so rightly indicated, that we are striving towards a more perfect union. But it takes work and it takes mm-hmm. honesty uh, and it makes, we need to acknowledge when we discover injustices in this country and write those injustices so that we can become a more perfect union, as he indicated. So, uh, while I celebrate, I also look with a critical eye and say, Hey, where can we get better? Um, yeah. and, uh, and there are some places where we can get better, obviously in a good faith media, we're working on that.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. So we're going to continue to grow and so is the country and we're going to keep striving toward that more perfect ex- experience.
1: Absolutely. Well, we had a delightful conversation with the Executive Director of the Baptist Joint Committee in Washington, D.C. this week, Amanda Tyler. She talks a little bit about the mythology of the United States being a Christian nation, but she also talks about the latest cases involving religious liberty and church-state separation that have come out of the Supreme Court, and so it is a a wonderful, wonderful uh, interview, so uh, you want to stay tuned, Uh, and Amanda Tyler's coming up next.
3: I'm Jenna, I'm Ashley, and we are reverends, revs on the road, Pop in the car with us and come along for the ride as we step out of the pulpit and see what God is up to in the world. We're not leaving the church. We're just finding it in all kinds of beautiful places. Revs on the road, a podcast from good faith media. We travel the country from the comfort of our place in Dallas for now and catch up with beautiful people doing God's work advocating for disability rights healing from church hurt and spiritual abuse promoting mental health and the power of community integrating spirituality and art working for racial justice and so much more we've got red light rants pit stops and detours faith is a journey and we're on it So ride along with us, The Revs, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Revs on the Road. And go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. We start dropping episodes in June. I'm Jenna. And I'm Ashley. We're Revs on the Road, a podcast from Good Faith Media. Learn more at goodfaithmedia.org.
1: Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest all the way from our nation's capital in Washington, D.C. Amanda Tyler is executive director of the Baptist Joint Committee. She leads the BJC as it upholds the historic Baptist principle of religious liberty, defending the free exercise of religion, and protecting against its establishment by government. Tyler often speaks in churches, educational institutions, and denominational gatherings as she provides commentary on church-state issues to the media. A member of the Texas and U.S. Supreme Court Bar, Tyler has experience working in Congress in a private legal practice and serving as a law clerk for a federal judge. Called a powerful advocate and rising star in the sector by the Nonprofit Times, she was named one of the nation's top 50 nonprofit leaders in 2018. She was named Baptist of the Year by EthicsDaily.com in 2019 for her work leading the Christians Against Christian Nationalism campaign. She also co-hosts the Respecting Religion series on the BJC podcast, and she serves on the board of the Center of Faith, Justice, and Reconciliation. Amanda, welcome to Good Faith Weekly.
4: Oh, thank you, Mitch. Thank you, Autumn. It's wonderful to be with you both.
1: Well, uh, Amanda, before we jump into questions about religious liberty and church-state separation, we've been talking to our guests just about what it's like to come out of the pandemic. Uh, we were talking a little bit off, uh, off I want to say off camera, but off mic, uh, about uh, some family things going on and things opening up across the country. So how are things with you and your family and the staff there at BJC? You guys kind of getting back into normal?
4: We are. You know, I, I was reflecting today, you know, we're, we're kind of changing months going from June to July this week and and thinking about where we were even at the beginning of June and just the pace, how things have sped up, how the calendar has filled up. Uh, I have to say from a personal perspective, you know, I think I underestimated the, the ramp up, you know, from going <laughs> from the pandemic lifestyle to uh, and then just kind of catching up for all of our lost time. Uh, Both, uh, My husband and and my family both live in Texas. They both visited us in Washington for the first time this past month. And uh, my son ended his kindergarten year. Uh, BJC staff are coming back to the office slowly. We're not going to fully reopen our office until after Labor Day. Um, But, uh, you know, and here in Washington, they're planning a big Fourth of July celebration on the National Mall. So I think that will be a moment when we really look and say, wow, we've... Uh, hopefully are coming on the other side of all of the social distancing. And um, though of course we still have to be so careful um, Mm. because this uh, terrible virus is still with us and mutating in different ways.
1: Yeah. I'm glad things are going so well for you and your family and the staff at BJC. It is a, a still a strange time. I still feel weird walking into a restaurant or a grocery store uh, without a mask, I always have a mask with me just in case uh, someone's not, a, not comfortable being unmasked and having to uh, say, hello, I'm Mitch Randall, I'm vaccinated. That's how my conversations start everywhere I go these days. Uh, but I'm glad you're doing well.
4: We should just get uh, name tags, right, right, that have that on there, and then we can <laughs> skip, to skip the pleasantries. Yeah, that's exactly we right. We really yeah.
0: should. So we brought you here today to talk about religious liberty. As we lead up to our nation's Independence Day weekend, we thought it was just a good time to reflect. So there seems to be an attempt by a segment of religious citizens to redefine religious liberty instead of the focus being on worship and the personal practice of faith proponents of this redefined religious liberty appear to want to use their beliefs to discriminate in the public square is there an attempt to redefine religious liberty in america
4: i mean i think some people certainly it's been a concerted effort to change the definition and i think that that is not new this is something that's been going on i think for really for decades um and i think you know sometimes it's intentional, and sometimes it's just a misunderstanding. And yeah. so I, you know, this has been the work at BJc for for decades is really trying to bring clarity and understanding nuance. um that that term, that idea is somewhat out of fashion these days, but I think is really critical to conversations about religious freedom. They're rarely, you know, all one way or the other, there's a lot of understanding that's that's needed when we talk about religious freedom. And I think when we and I'll use those terms interchangeably, religious freedom and religious liberty, um, they're both used. Uh, religious liberty is what BJC is actually in the name of our organization, Baptist Joint Committee for Religious Liberty, um, but but they mean the same thing. And and for us, uh, religious liberty or religious freedom means the freedom to believe or not belief and the freedom to act on those beliefs without the unnecessary interference of government. And that last clause is really important. Um, that there are some times when the government has to stand step in to stop our practice, to stop the actions on our beliefs. And that's because we live in a pluralistic society. That's because there's a lot of difference in the way that we practice our religion. And if everyone had an unfettered right to practice their religion in any way, then they would very soon trample on the rights of their neighbors. Mm-hmm. And it and therefore, we would lose religious freedom. And so understanding that when those uh, actions and those values come into conflict and figuring out how to arbitrate between those and, and sometimes they end up in the in the courts, all the way up to the Supreme Court. Sometimes they can be settled in, in ways short of litigation. But those are the questions that animate religious freedom. Um, and I think having some of that understanding, some of that nuance is, is really key. And so, you know, in your question, are people trying to redefine it? I think sometimes they are, and and where they go afoul is when they say, Well, it's my religious liberty to blank. Well, that's the that's the start of the conversation. That's not the end of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so this idea of this unfettered ability to do whatever you want to do and, and just, um, claim it as your religious freedom is really a a redefinition of what that means, what our founders meant when they, um, enshrined this right in our founding documents. And, uh, it's that, Better understanding that we at BJC are are working day in, day out, week in, week out um, to try to bring some understanding to that to our broader world.
1: Mm -hmm. Amanda, do you think it would be fair to say, maybe instead of uh, redefining uh, religious liberty or even trying to define it, it's an interpretation or reinterpretation? And it's something that is constantly going on since the founding of the country. I remember your predecessor, Brent Walker, often talking about. Uh, the, the metaphor of the wall separating church and state, and while it's a wonderfully splendid metaphor, sometimes we get confused because we think it's stagnant. And throughout history, that wall has moved uh, from time to time as uh, culture has changed, as the country has changed, and our ability to apply the First Amendment to each one of these circumstances that arise as the country continues you know, to get older. And so do you think it's more kind of an interpretation trying to help people interpret what religious liberty is, church-state separation is, and, and, and how to apply that interpretation? Because I just think of it kind of like as a pastor, you know, my job is not to tell people what the Bible says as much as help them understand an interpretation of it and how to apply that interpretation to it.
4: Oh, I think that's a really excellent point Mitch and of course you serve bJc so well as a longtime board member and board chair and so I know that that you know um these conflicts really well and I I think that idea of a reinterpretation is is really important you know r- religious freedom is not an idea that's ensconced in in amber you know that we can right. go look at it in, in a in a museum it's something that has changed as the as the country has changed over these many years, you know, and the, I, I referenced our founding documents. Those are very much an ideal one that was not realized certainly at the time when the documents were written and is not still fully realized. And it's up to each generation to analyze and think about religious freedom in our current context and how can religious freedom best be served, right? We, it, nothing's perfect you know and we're going to we're going to do the best that we can when we when these rights come into conflict but if we keep our eye on how can this best be served for everyone and sometimes in the particular context that might be a curtailing of individual rights when necessary in order to serve the value of religious freedom for everyone, and and that's a balance that we as Americans and a lot of this talk, you know, of course, religious freedom is also a global idea. Um, but most of our work at BJC is focused in the American experience. But this is this is an idea that we as Americans are very familiar with. We live in a society, right, and so we're we have to balance rights. We have to learn how to live peaceably together, and you know, for some, I feel like religious freedom and in their interpretation has taken on this absolutist quality in a way that really is at odds with communal living and and living in a diverse society like we do as Americans.
1: Very well said. Thank you for that. Well as both of you indicated, the July fourth holiday is this weekend, this Sunday. Americans all across the country are going to be celebrating the country's birthday. Last weekend here in Norman, Oklahoma, where Autumn and I live, we were graced with the presence of David Barton, who's an infamous Christian nationalist arguing that the United States was founded as a Christian nation. Amanda, let's just go ahead and put this myth to bed right now. <laughs> what is the truth uh regarding the founding of this country? Uh obviously, it's you know, it's it was influenced by the Christian faith, but also so many other faiths. <laughs> But why was, how was America formed? Was it formed as a Christian nation? And then the follow-up question is, tell us a little bit about your work uh, regarding this in a movement that you spearheaded about three years ago.
4: Yeah, so I have to, you know, like a lawyer. Sorry, I have to say, what do you mean by Christian nation? Because I think people mean that in different ways. You know, was our country founded um, at the time of the founding? Were did a majority of people in in power associate themselves with the Christian religion in some way and claim it in some way? Probably, although when you actually look, historians have looked at church attendance. It was quite quite low in the founding period by the way. Um, Same same can be
1: said today, Amanda.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So very unlike today.
4: (laughs) True, true. Um, But, you know, I'll give them that, right? Are we a Christian majority nation? Yes, but that's not usually what they mean when they say Christian nation. Instead, they mean that the country was founded by Christians in order to privilege Christianity in some way, that some, some people who claim that, uh, say that our founding documents the declaration of independence and the constitution were actually divinely inspired um they say that god has a special providential role for america in world in 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 world history that god had that at the time and that we're continuing to live into that and all of those i would say an emphatic no that the united states is not a christian nation Those who perpetuate this myth, and David Barton is chief among them, uh, really work on um, mythological history, cherry picking anecdotes and putting them together, setting up straw men and then tearing them down to to tell uh, a story that sounds compelling and interesting about but is is really not true. Um, And so I. I think the best way to counteract this, and we do have some resources available, some myth-busting from Christians Against Christian Nationalism that I'll talk about in a moment, Um, but I I often don't think—I mean, we can go anecdote for anecdote and, and talk about, look at each of the founders and analyze their theology as best as we can, but I don't really think that's a particularly helpful way to counteract the myth of Christian nationalism. Instead, I point to the founding documents and specifically to the U.S. Constitution, Article 6 of the U.S. Constitution, that provide there's only one place in the actual Constitution that religion or religious is mentioned at all. It's Article 6, no religious tests for public office. So I often say, You know, if the founders were trying to set up a Christian nation, if they wanted to set up a Christian nation, then that was a really ineffective way to do it. These were smart uh, men who wrote these documents, and they they could have done it if they wanted to. And historians have uh, looked at the founding period, and there were debates about it. There were Debates at the time about people who were pushing to have more references to God and the Constitution or to have there were actually there were religious tests in the colonies to have that for the United States and that idea was rejected at our founding. So not only were we not founded as a Christian nation, we actually actively rejected the idea of a founding Mm -hmm. as a Christian nation. Instead, we were founded as a country in which religion, our religious identity would not pertain to our status as citizens, right? That everyone would have equal citizenship, regardless of their religious beliefs. Now, I'm going to put a big asterisk next to everyone, because we know that at the founding period, that these rights were absolutely not extended to everyone. They were extended to white men, specifically white men who owned property. Um, but, but that ideal, again, uh, was that religion would not uh, pertain to our rights as citizens. And so I think pointing to that is really important um and and then I'd love I you know you asked me about our work against Christian nationalism I'd love to go into that here
1: yeah tell um, us a little of, bit about it
4: yeah so and and of course um you know good faith media has been a, a wonderful partner in this work with us we Uh, In 2019, we established this initiative called Christians Against Christian Nationalism. And at the time, we were really seeing more and more instances of Christian nationalism in the culture and, and, frankly, more and more violent instances, as well as things that were happening in state legislatures. And we, as a Christian organization working with other Christians, felt like it was our really unique role and responsibility to call out Christian nationalism, to help people understand what it is, to provide resources for conversation and discussion, and to try to start to dismantle um, this idea that's being perpetuated that the United States is a Christian nation. So in in our work, we've defined Christian nationalism as a political ideology that attempts to merge our identities as Americans and Christians. Uh, There's a website, christiansagainstchristiannationalism.org, and the centerpiece of our work is a statement that anyone who self-identifies as a Christian can sign, Um, and that's a first step. And then the next step is to use the resources that we put out on that website to have conversations in their communities and churches and Facebook groups and dinner tables um, to help people understand Christian nationalism and why it's such a threat, not just to our unity as Americans, but to our faithful journey as Christians.
1: You know, I appreciate that answer so well, or so much, because there's so many people in our world, uh, and Autumn and I live certainly in the, the heart of the Bible Belt, that struggle with the idea that you have to believe in Christian nationalism to either be a good Christian or to be a good patriot, and the movement of Christians against Christian nationalism and the the, the proper definition and translation uh, or interpretation of religious liberty from BJC's perspective is simply saying. You can believe that America was not founded as a Christian nation. It does not make you uh, unpatriotic by any means, and it doesn't make you less of a Christian. That you can you can believe those and and still be who you are and and love God and and practice your faith freely and openly in this country, while at the same time respecting the ability of other people to practice or not practice their faith as their conscience dictates. So that was a lovely answer. Thank you so much.
0: Mm-hmm. Thanks. The BJC BG- the has placed an emphasis on freedom within the African-American community. It hosted a fierce freedom conversation against the backdrop of Juneteenth celebration. Can you tell us a little bit about your work with freedom and racial justice?
4: Uh, I'm so glad you asked about this, Autumn, because this work that we're doing uh, around reimagining the mission of BJC at the intersection of Religious Freedom and Racial Justice is really animating my work, animating the work of my team here at BJC, and providing a clear vision for where we're headed in this next phase of our work. Um, so, you know, this year I'll throw in BJC is celebrating our 85th anniversary and part of what we're doing at 85, of course, we're, we're looking at our past with, with grateful hearts and, but also wide open eyes at where we have uh, had shortcomings in our past. And there's a BJC board has a committee on race and religious liberty. That's been working for the past couple of years, really taking, a hard look at our history and places where we have not been fully inclusive as an organization. You know, at our founding uh, back in the 1930s, we were a group that brought together Southern Baptists, Northern Baptists, and National Baptists, National Baptist Convention being a predominantly African-American convention. And, you know, we have told that story for many years. And when we look more closely at our history, we have found that our black brothers and sisters were not welcomed as equal partners at the table during that time and we are approaching this history with a real sense of repentance um and what and not only you know the harm that was caused by bjc not being fully involved in the civil rights mo- movement for example at that time and somewhat narrowly defining our idea of what religious freedom meant during that time Um, but we're also thinking about how much we missed by having a narrow view of religious freedom and not having their voices and perspectives fully considered at the table and so as we celebrate 85 we are determined not to repeat those mistakes for the future and now is the time for us to boldly tell this truth and this has been the theme for our work this year that religious freedom has been white too long and that quote is um t- is a quote from white too long is a phrase that James Baldwin wrote in the in the New York Times in 1969, and and then in turn inspired Robert P. Jones in a book that he wrote um, last year uh, called White Too Long and talking about uh, white supremacy in American Christianity. And so we inspired by by that work, we've been thinking, you know, in what ways have our conceptions of religious freedom, both intentionally and unintentionally, centered a white experience? Um, And are there ways that we can make space for other voices to share their experiences of religious freedom. And so um, the the event that we held uh, on the day before Juneteenth, when the federal holiday Juneteenth was observed for the first time in this country, uh, Fierce Freedom, we featured Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, who gave a beautiful and passionate and powerful call to action for the church Um, to respond to racial justice. And I would really highly recommend uh, her her talk um, to listeners. And you can find a recording uh, on BJC's YouTube channel and and website for that. Um, But it really was just the latest in programming that we've had all year. We had our annual Sheridan Lectures where we featured four black scholars uh, from different university settings talking in a, in a zoom room. This, this is one of these wonderful things about about some technology that we've discovered in the midst of, of this awful pandemic, but you know that we could bring these scholars together and share their reflections on how religious freedom has been white too long. My colleague Charles Watson Jr. has been hosting a series of conversations on BJC's Facebook Live channel uh, where we are featuring uh, voices. We first had voices of Black faith freedom. We had voices of Asian American faith freedom, and we will have other voices series throughout this year. These are all uh, ways in which we are listening to and learning from diverse perspectives about faith freedom. And then our, the next phase of our work will be integrating all of this together and providing resources for communities, churches, uh, groups to to learn more from these perspectives as as we seek not to, you know, back to how we started this conversation, not to redefine religious freedom, but to reinterpret religious freedom in a way that really takes into account diverse perspectives on the topic.
1: I mean, that is so important because, you know, as I have shared my story, my family's story about religious liberty and why I'm such an advocate for religious liberty, people of color for so long have not benefited from that freedom. Um, I think about you know, the indigenous cultures that I'm a part of. And and recently the, the news coming out of Canada and now the Biden administration's investigation of the boarding schools here in the United States and the discovery, and I'm quite certain that they are going to be discovering you know, bodies and mass graves uh, at these boarding schools here in the United States as well, where there was an indoctrination on, you know, funded by the federal government to Christianize and really to basically, as Pratt tried to indicate, kill the Indian to save the man. Um, and so I think these voices, brown and, and black voices here in America, need to be amplified. And so I'm so glad that you guys are doing this
4: yeah i i think that's absolutely right and you know when i think about um what animated the work of bjc from the beginning and often we we tell the story of baptists who lacked freedom Mm -hmm. white baptists by -hmm. the way right Mm -hmm. you know but but we tell that story and that and i'm not belittling that experience but can we not learn that it's those who are oppressed and at the margins who have I think the most powerful voice for freedom, and how can we listen more closely and intently and learn from voices of oppression? Um, again, not certainly not celebrating that oppression, but that exists. Let's first recognize the existence yeah, of it. Let's believe
0: it, it. right? Yeah. Let's believe what they say. Yeah. That's yeah. A good first step.
4: Yeah, and then listen, and and that requires those of us who are in a majority position, who have been in a pri- privileged position, to make space, mm-hmm. you know, and and to and to take that listening and learning posture, and that's what we're trying to do uh, here in our eighty fifth year at BJC, and. We are looking not just back, but but very much forward. And in 15 short years, we're going to be (laughs) celebrating a centennial. And I am dreaming of what BJC will look like and advocate like in 15 years and and just so excited for for what we're gonna do over this next period of time.
1: That is exciting. All right, well, let's shift gears as we start to wrap up uh, the interview. Um, Let's talk about the most recent Supreme Court decision uh, that BJC was a part of uh, filing, I think it was a friend of uh, the court brief, um, Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. Now, I don't know if you were as surprised as I was, but we got a unanimous decision out of the Supreme Court, which was, confusing and surprising for a variety of reasons. So can you give us a little brief overview of the case and BJC's involvement in it?
4: Yeah, I, yes, I will. And yes, I was shocked. Um, so, you know, those of us who are Supreme Court watchers, the month of June turns into this thing where every every day I set a calendar reminder at 10 a.m. Eastern to go watch SCOTUS blog, uh, which which blogs about the release of the opinions and and just wait with bated breath to see if the, the case that we were watching would come out that day. Um, and so on June 17th, uh, the day before our Fierce Freedom event, um, was the day that the Supreme Court finally released this opinion, I say finally because it was argued all the way back the day after Election Day, back in November, and so that's a that's a pretty long time for the court to hold a decision. And um, so we were all just really wondering what it would be, and I think no one guessed that it would be a 9-0 ruling on such a contentious issue. So the the case is Fulton versus City of Philadelphia. At issue was uh, a, the city of Philadelphia had contracted with some private religious organizations to help run their foster care system. And in particular, a piece of the foster care system that they that was issue here was the certification of families who to who would be qualified to be in the pool of eligible foster parents. And Catholic Social Services was one of these um, agencies that was contracting with the government. And they had said, based on their religious beliefs, that they would not certify uh, unmarried couples or uh, married lgbt couples and the reason they said it violated their religious beliefs it in it and and therefore violated their free exercise rights because to certify them would be um for them to somehow um condone uh, that that union um and they don't they believe that uh, only marriage between uh, straight couples was condoned by God. So um, BJC, as we often do in these church state cases, we we looked at the facts of the case very closely. We asked the question, how is religious liberty best served in this case? And in this case, um, we said that the, religious liberty was best served by upholding the city of Philadelphia's non-discrimination ordinance. Where where this came into conflict is the city of Philadelphia had an ordinance that said um, non-discrimination in any of these city services, including the certification of foster care families. Mm -hmm. And, And that's because, you know, the, in, in, There's no way to draw a line here between um, all kinds of discrimination, including religious discrimination. And so that that we felt that that was a high order, and because of the contracting situation, that this was a government service. And again, the government remains neutral when it comes to religion. And therefore, it did not uh, violate the First Amendment to prohibit the conditioning of the receipt of this government contract on the agency adhering to the government's non-discrimination policy. Well, um, in this case, the Supreme Court, again, unanimously ruled on behalf of Catholic Social Services. Um, They and they did it in a surprising way. Um, They did it based on the contract at issue, and they looked at one particular provision in the contract that said that uh, the city could make exceptions. And they said, because there was the option to make an exception in this case, that the case was the, the ordinance was therefore not generally applicable. And that is a legal term um, that goes back to a landmark free exercise case called employment division versus Smith. As long as a law is neutral and generally applicable Uh, then it is generally going to stand regardless of the free exercise um, claim of, of the group. But if it's not generally applicable, then a higher standard, a standard called strict scrutiny applies. And in that case... If the social service uh, agency could show that their religious freedom was substantially burdened, then the government had to show that they had a compelling government interest, a really good reason to enforce their uh, provision, and they couldn't do it in another uh, in 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 another way. So this is a lot of a lot of jargon here, but I I think what I can I can kind of cut to the chase and say, I think that the Chief Justice, Chief Justice Roberts, who wrote the majority opinion in this case, really wanted to keep the court together. He really didn't want to see a splinter decision in this case. Mm-hmm. Um, he did not want Justice Alito, who wrote a 77-page concurrence. He did not want, which is a really long oh, Judge opinion <laughs> for someone who didn't for, for something that is, is just kind of showing his ideas and not something that's going to be law here.
0: We've all I interviewed think, preachers before Amanda. You understand <laughs> You understand that. Yep. Yep.
4: So, I mean, I think that he found a, a loophole in some ways he, by relying on this contractual provision. And there's a way to look at this. I know that um, advocates, you know, we were disappointed because the court really um, gave it almost. Very little discussion to burden about how this really burdened uh, Catholic social services and also very little discussion to the compelling government interest of making sure that everyone in our society is treated equally. We think that and and there was there was so little discussion in the decision and that was disappointing to us. Um I think a lot of groups whose primary mission is advocating for LGBT equality were very disappointed by this decision. Um although I think they also thought that it could have been much worse for instance if Justice Alito's concurrence was actually the majority opinion. So there were a lot of mixed emotions coming out of this and and I think one really good thing for religious freedom here, you know, back kind of to the top of the of our discussion is is finding ways to balance rights in our in our society. And the and the court found a way to do that. In this case, they left for another day, all these other disputes that are out there. And so, you know, in some ways, a lot of people are calling this a narrow decision because it is so focused on this contractual provision. And so I think this dispute is not resolved in any way. Um, but again, it's a, a very rare unanimous decision and one that uh, you know, hopefully on the ground in communities, we can continue to work out these disputes and figure out ways where we can all live peaceably together, and we are furthering freedom for everyone, uh, not just um, not just a few.
1: Yeah, and you bring up another excellent point for those of us who, you know, read Law for Dummies uh, for occasion, is that when the the larger populace hears about these decisions, how important it is to really look at what the justices are saying in their opinions and dissents, because that's kind of where the rubber meets the road and where, where you can find the details of their decision. It's not oftentimes it's just not an over there, there's not just a clear winner and loser in some of these cases mm-hmm. there are some nuances that have to be defined and understood within each of these cases so you brought that to light very very well
4: well and one more point very fast if if listeners really do want to to get into those details I want to commend my colleague Holly Holman she wrote a piece for SCOTUS blog I, I mentioned that earlier this is really one of the Uh, leading places that court watchers go. She wrote uh, an analysis of the opinion for a symposium, an online symposium they did, and I would really recommend that piece to understand even better the nuances of this case.
1: Well, it certainly appears that uh, there's not going to be a slowdown in your work, Amanda, and the BJC. Uh, Lots of things on the horizon, and uh, we are applauding you over here at Good Faith Media for all the good work that you and your colleagues do at uh, BJC. Uh, And we appreciate your time with us today. But before we let you go, Autumn's got one last question for you.
0: Our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of everything that we've talked about here today and the important work BJC is doing, what is your more to tell?
4: My more to tell is that protecting religious freedom takes all of us, and I really want to invite listeners to go more deeply with us at BJC to uh, sign up to get our action alerts at bjconline.org, and also to check out our many resources at ChristiansAgainstChristianNationalism.org. Uh, this month we have a brand new curriculum coming out that can be used in churches and small groups to talk about Christian nationalism. So they. can go there and and find that this month, and we also uh, will be hosting another webinar that talks specifically about Christian nationalism and racism uh, with some leading authors on the topic, so uh, check out ChristiansAgainstChristianNationalism.org and uh, join us as we talk more about um, this troubling ideology and try to dismantle it.
1: Amanda Tyler is Executive Director of the Baptist Joint Committee, and we are a— We are just such a fan of the BJC, and we applaud all the work you're doing. Amanda, thank you so much for spending time with us today.
4: Oh, thank you. So, so pleased to be your partner in this work.
1: And to our listeners, we want to thank you for tuning in to Good Faith Weekly, as always. And until next time, first of all, have a wonderful, happy Independence Day this weekend. And when Autumn and I reconvene next week, keep living good faith.